today's sermon text is from Genesis 28, 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that, I, that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. Amen. All right, where are my preschoolers at? Preschoolers, y'all head on back to the back doors. Head on to your class. For those of us staying... I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28. We'll be looking at most of this chapter and a little bit back into Genesis chapter 27. We are continuing a sermon series that will take us through the rest of the book of Genesis. We began preaching through Genesis a couple years ago, and we preached the first 11 chapters. And, uh, you know, the beginning of this year, we decided to continue preaching through Genesis. And that's our practice. If you're new to Trace, we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so we are walking through Genesis right now, and we've made our way to Genesis 28. I'm so thankful that you're here with us. What we've been doing and the way we've chosen to preach through Genesis is we're essentially looking at the lives and the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their story is so important. And, and one thing you notice, especially as you read the rest of the Old Testament, is that their story is the story of Israel. And their story is the story of God's people for all time, which means that we've tried to show you every week that in many ways, their story is our story. And, and you know, we've been learning through, through this journey a lot about who God is and a lot about how God chooses to relate to us. And as we've learned about some of the earliest of God's people, we've also been learning how we even relate to them. So, so even though Abraham lived 4,000 years before us, who among us cannot relate to his developing faith that was filled with doubts? I mean, Isaac, he struggled with idolizing his children. 
Isaac. So many years ago, we think that the danger of idolizing our children is a modern American thing. And here we have Isaac struggling with this and Rebecca struggling with this. They idolized their children, favoring one over the other to such a degree that it actually blinded them to the will and purposes of God. Surely we would never do that, right? And now we have Jacob. And now here's the thing about Jacob. If there was ever a person in the Old Testament that we should be able to relate to, It's Jacob. Jacob is so relatable. Jacob was a man who was raised in a godly home. His his parents, they loved the Lord. They taught him all they knew about the Lord. You know, his, his mom in particular loved Jacob and had taught him from an early age about God's own choice of him and God's promise to bless him. But although Jacob knew about God, he knew about God. And and although Jacob believed in God in in some way, Jacob's life was an utter mess. (laughs) And Jacob himself was a mess. Here's what we've seen so far about Jacob. He is conniving. He is manipulative. He is self-serving. Jacob cared far more for his own future and his own personal security than even his own brother. He wanted his father's affirmation so badly that he was willing to deceive his father in order to get it. And Esau, we we learned famously, that that he, he sold his birthright. He sold his birthright for some stew. But Jacob essentially sold his soul for blessing. He got the blessing. He got what he wanted. And he lost everything else. He got the blessing, got what he wanted, but he lost everything else. Jacob, we're seeing, needed more than a little bit of head knowledge about God. He needed more than just a dash of belief in God to become what God had chosen him to become. What Jacob needed was an encounter with God's grace. And we are exactly the same. You see, we have these desires that don't just come out of nowhere and aren't just products of our culture. We have desires that are hardwired to our hearts, and and they're, they're warped by sin in really specific ways. We have desires for security and satisfaction. We have desires for acceptance and love. We desire to belong to someone, to feel like we fit in. And we try to fulfill these desires in our own way from sources that cannot ultimately provide. And although many of us were raised in Christian homes, and many of us know about God and believe in God, we too have made messes of our lives. We've made wrecks of our lives. And if you are disagreeing with me on that, then you're going to struggle this morning to understand the beauty of God's grace. Because Only when you see that you have made a mess of your life can you fully rejoice in the fact that God is gracious. We're like Jacob, and we need an encounter with God's grace in order to become who God has created and chosen us to be in Christ. So in in Genesis 28, Jacob's life is changed forever. This is a turning point. Genesis 28 is is a monumental passage not only for Jacob but for the people of Israel and for you and for me the passage centers on a dream a dream that Jacob had in a place that he would later name Bethel the house of God 
Now, before Jacob came to Bethel, he was a wayward, weary, and wandering exile. After Jacob left Bethel, he was a covenant-bearing worshiper of God, fully committed to his purposes. At the beginning of, of, of the passage that was read and the end of the passage that was read are two almost completely different men. Jacob, the weary wanderer. Jacob, the covenant-bearing worshiper. The question we have to answer this morning is, what made the difference? What inspired such radical change in Jacob? Now, to discover the source of Jacob's transformation and to discover the source of the transformation that each one of us has to have in order to be what God has created us to be, we need to see three things from Genesis 28. First, we need to see Jacob's need, Jacob's need. Second, we need to see Jacob's dream. And third, we need to see Jacob's change, his need, his dream, and his change. Jacob's need. As I said, in order to fully appreciate Jacob's dream and God's grace that was revealed to him in it, we have to see what led Jacob to this place. Because, you know, where we started reading this morning, Jacob left Beersheba and he went toward Haran and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. This sounds odd. I mean, is he just on a camping trip? Is he, is he trying to, you know, he's just on a little personal retreat to try to, you know, discover himself? You know, what, what, what is this? Why is he out in the wilderness? Well, last week, if you remember, we saw that Isaac, Jacob's father, he had passed the divine blessing down to his younger son, Jacob. But Isaac did not mean to do this. Isaac meant to bless the older son, Esau. But through deception, for disguising himself and tricking his father, Isaac unintentionally passed the blessing on to Jacob. After all of that happened, what we didn't read last week, what we need to read now is in Genesis 27, verse 41. And in Genesis 27, 41, we read this. Now, Esau hated Jacob. That's probably the most relatable thing from this morning, right? It's like, if you were Esau, how would you feel? If your brother had stolen your birthright, stolen your blessing, tricked your father, pretended to be something you're not, you go back to your dad to say, okay, you've blessed the younger son. Can you bless me too? I, I need some blessing. I'm all out of blessing, son. I'm so sorry. I gave it to your younger brother. And then we see how Esau really feels about it. He hates him. That language is so strong, but it's so true. He hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, we read in Genesis 27, 41, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. This is so ominous. <laughs> the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. I mean, you know what he's saying. Dad's about to die. And let me tell you something. You're safe as long as dad's alive. As soon as dad dies and we mourn his death, you are mine, bro. You're mine. And he says he set in his own heart to kill his brother. 
Well, Rebecca always seems to be in the right place at the right time. She always overhears things. Maybe it's a mom thing. I'm not real sure. You just always are there, and you hear, and you know. But, but Rebecca saw the hatred that Esau had for Jacob, and she was scared to death for Jacob and his safety. So she warns Jacob about it, tells him to leave home right away and to go to her brother Laban. And so she tells Jacob to stay with her brother for a while until Esau's anger cools, until he can calm down a little bit. Maybe things will, you know, just... Uh, uh, you know, smooth out in the end. Eventually, the plan was for Jacob to return home once it's safe. So you can come back home, but you got to wait till it's safe. So for his own safety, Jacob, by word of his own parents, is sent into exile. Now, before he leaves, Isaac calls Jacob in, and he actually blesses him again. And he blesses him again. This time, it's 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 more willingly. And he tells him to do a couple things. First, he says, "When you leave, do not marry." from the Canaanite women. Don't, don't marry a Canaanite. But instead, find a wife among your cousins. And no, he didn't send him to Kentucky um, to, to find, you know, just go marry your cousin over there, you know. Um, this, that's a, we could talk about that some other time. That'd be a good podcast episode. Um, but that's, that's the command. Don't marry from the Canaanites. Go and marry from your, your brother's uh, or your, your uncle's children. Okay, so then Isaac blesses Jacob, and here's what he says. God Almighty, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. Now, that's a meaningful blessing right there. But it's the second blessing from Isaac. So he receives this glorious blessing from his father. Jacob leaves home never to see his mom again or his dad again. He won't see him. Um, and he's leaving alone, fleeing death. Now, while he's journeying as an exile, Jacob finds himself in an unfamiliar place. The sun starts to set. He stops for the night. And it's called a place here because it didn't have a name. And, and what that means is that, you know, in this particular area where Jacob is, no one has settled there. Nothing significant had happened there. Jacob is in this unnamed, insignificant place. And when Jacob arrived to this unnamed, insignificant place, as the sun is setting, he finds a stone, uses it as a pillow, and he goes to sleep. Now, here's a question. Who is Jacob at this point? Because we want to move on to the dream. Because that's how we live our lives. We want to move on to God's grace and his love, and we don't, we don't want to sit and focus on our need. Remember, Jacob has been told through two blessings from Isaac, now two blessings, that one day he will be the father of a great nation. He doesn't have a wife at this point. That he will have divine protection. Here he is, alone, sleeping on a stone in the wilderness. That he will possess a bountiful land, and that he will have God's favor. And yet right now, in this moment, Jacob is homeless, he is poor, he is guilt-ridden, he is afraid, and he is an exile. He is both far from home and he is far from God. Jacob's homeless. He's in this unnamed place. He has no resources, think about it, he has no resources to pay his way into a more comfortable journey. He, he's, he's probably guilt-ridden. I mean, all of this is his own doing. Jacob received a blessing from his dad, but only through manipulation. And now he's alone, and he's separated from his family. He doesn't have a friend in the world. And all of that is a consequence of his own actions. How bitter it must have been for Jacob to know that his own misery had been completely unnecessary. 
that it was the creation of his own faithless deceit. The word of God had already promised Jacob the position of the firstborn, but Jacob had stolen it with his own lies. And so the blessing that he had stolen is now backfiring on him. His actions led to all these consequences of alienation and exile. And it's so ironic to see the bearer of the divine promise and blessing, Jacob, living like this. And yet here he is, alone, with his haunting thoughts of all the mistakes that he's made. And Jacob's also afraid. I would be afraid. You would be afraid. Esau, his estranged brother, wants to kill him. He's not home right now. Jacob's not home right now. He doesn't know when his dad's going to die. It could be any moment, and then, boom, Esau lets out to chase after Jacob. He doesn't know. He's fleeing for his life. Jacob is on the run. He's profoundly alone, no one to talk to, in a dark, unknown wasteland full of real and present danger. He's scared. But Jacob is also in exile. Here's the thing. Jacob can't come home. He doesn't just leave because he wants to. He is sent away. He, he, he is, he's sent into exile to wander in the wilderness until he finds his way to his uncle's place. And the last thing here we see about Jacob at this point in his life, Jacob, despite his lineage, does not know God. We see it later at the end of the dream. He wakes up and he says, I was essentially surprised by God's presence. Jacob wasn't looking for God. You notice that? If we read the passage again, we'll get to it. He's in this desolate, lonely place, scared, guilty, afraid, alone. And he doesn't pray. He he doesn't seek after God. That's really significant. He doesn't cry out for mercy help or wisdom guidance he's still in his own mind trying to prove himself worthy of the blessing to try to save himself from disaster within his own power now does this seem like a man who would bear a blessing that would extend to the whole world Jacob does not seem like someone that God could use to advance his kingdom he does not seem like someone that God would even care very much about at all He's not impressive. He's not a holy man. He's not a very faithful man. He's a terrible brother. He's a terrible son. This is the state of every single one of us when we're left to our own devices. Every single one of us. Left to our own wisdom, left to our own strength, left to our own righteousness. We were created to bear the image of God. We are meant to be his likeness, which means that we are meant to reflect the perfect character of God in our lives. The blessing of God is meant to flow through us to others. But we're like Jacob in this wilderness night. We are weak. We are not impressive. We are not holy. We are not faithful. You see, we often need the clarity of Jacob's night in the wilderness in order to see our own need. Because we're often blind to, to, the, to the depths of our need. We're largely self-sufficient. I mean, a night sleeping on a stone in the cold, dark, lonely wilderness, that's completely foreign to us. We have everything we need, for the most part. 
And we're incentivized by our culture to pretend that we are far better off than we actually are. That's kind of social media's thing. Like, we, we are incentivized to put on a good face, to pretend that everything is fine, that, that we are far better off than we actually are. We have so many sources from which to seek what our hearts desire, yet deep down, if we would only take the time and energy that it takes to look, we will see what Jacob started to see, an emptiness in our hearts. We will see that we are not sufficient to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. We do not bless others as we should, and on our own, we are far from home and we are far from God. Left to ourselves, we are guilt-ridden, afraid, in exile. We are wayward, we are weary, and we are wandering. Now, here's what I want you to do, and it may be painful. I want you to take a moment right now and, and ask yourself, how have I made a mess of my life? How have you made a mess of your life? What have you done in the past that even, even though you know about God, you know, you know that he's gracious and he loves you and you know that he has forgiven you, is there something that you have done in your past that continues to haunt you? Is there anything that continues to keep you up at night? What sins do you regularly commit that leave you wondering if God would ever care about you or use you for his glory? Is there something in your life that causes you to think, well, I don't know, you know, maybe God loves me, maybe he just tolerates me. What does your dark night in the lonely wilderness look like right now? We need to see it. We need to feel it. We need to feel our need before we can see the glory of the dream that God gives. So let's turn now to that dream, Jacob's dream. It's in verses 12 through 15. See, as Jacob slept, he had a dream. And in this dream, he sees something and he hears something. What did he see? Well, first, Jacob saw a ladder or a staircase. We read here in verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Now, our ESV translate this, translates this Hebrew word as ladder, um, but another way that you could translate it, one that I actually prefer is, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but based on all of my reading this week, I, I, I seem to prefer the other way you can translate it, which is a staircase. So ladder or staircase either is fine. I mean, even like, like you know, in the most, most raw sense of the Hebrew word used, you could even say like ramp. But uh, yeah, ladder, staircase, it, it's a picture that, that of something that's, that's vast, it's, it's big, it's, it's where angels are on one side ascending, they're going up, and on the other side they're descending, they're, they're coming down. Um, but, but there's this staircase that he sees in this dream, and the top of it reaches to the heavens, the bottom of it reaches all the way down to the earth. Well, the second thing Jacob sees is he sees angels. So there's a staircase, top in the heavens, bottom on the earth, but there are angels that are on this staircase, or on this ladder. 
And what a majestic sight that must have been. Angels coming up and coming down. We're not told how many were there. But it had to be just an indescribable experience. And that's because angels are glorious beings. They are, they are terrifying beings. You know, C.S. Lewis, he, he reminds us that anytime you have an angel that shows up on the pages of Scripture, the first thing the angel has to say is always what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We have these modern conceptions of what angels look like, and, you know, especially when you have a, if you have a newborn, they usually give you stuff that will have, like, a little angel on it that's real cute. No, no. Angels were at least terrifying enough that they had to announce, first of all, hey, don't be scared of me, you know? So they were terrifying. They were glorious. They, you know, were indescribable beings, and Jacob, he sees them ascending, going up and descending, coming down on this ladder, on this staircase. But, but third... And most importantly, Jacob sees the Lord. Now, this is what's really cool about this. And it's why I wish I was even more well-versed in Hebrew. But the way the Hebrew is written in this story, each description of the dream is shorter than the description before it for the, for the sake of emphasis. And the language is even exclamatory, meaning in its most raw form, it could be translated something like this. Look, there's a staircase. The bottom touched the earth, the top touched the heavens. That's the longest. And then, oh, and there are angels going up and coming down. A little bit shorter. And then, and the Lord. And that's essentially it. He, sa he says here in verse 13, And behold, the Lord stood above it. The Lord's appearance is the climax of the dream. And, you know, there's some disagreement among scholars as to how the Lord's appearance should be translated. And by the way, every time I mention something here, you probably see a footnote in, in your, your ESV Bible where we have the one over ladder, and now you have one above this phrase, stood above it. Um, you know, there's, there's just some disagreement as to whether it should be translated stood above it, as our ESV has, or it could also be translated as stood beside or above him. Regardless, the point is the climax of the dream is much like the climax of a wedding. The wedding party makes their way down the aisle, but then what happens? The minister lifts his hands like this. Everyone in the room stands up. The doors burst open, and then the bride comes in. That's the picture here. In the same way, all the glory of the angels ascending and descending the staircase pale in comparison to the Lord's arrival, his appearance. Here he is, the Lord of heaven, descending to the place that Jacob had rested. That's what Jacob saw. But he heard something too. The God who appeared spoke. And what did he hear? In verses 13 through 15, we read this. Here's what God says in this dream. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised to you. There are five parts to this speech. First, we have revelation. God reveals himself to Jacob. He says, 
I am the God of your fathers. He, he, he reveals his personal name, and he reveals his connection to his family. Second, there's a promise of land. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And the land that Jacob is in now, the land of Canaan, will one day belong to Jacob and all of his descendants. This is a promise the Lord reiterates to Jacob as he had given to Isaac and Abraham before him. Well, then he promises children, and we've seen this from Abraham, with a promise from the Lord to Abraham, a promise from the Lord to Isaac, and now a promise from the Lord to Jacob that his offspring will be like the dust of the earth. God promises Jacob's descendants will be innumerable. Then he promises global blessing. He says, you shall spread to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south or four corners of the earth. And he says, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there isn't just a promise for an abundance of children. There's a, a promise for an abundance of dominion. Jacob's family, they will spread to the four corners of the earth. And this, this global dominion will not be full of tyranny where they're just controlling everything in the world. But instead it will be full of blessing. And, and this blessing that is given to Abraham's family will one day belong and spread and fill the whole earth as it spreads through them. So we start to see here early on, as we did with Abraham, God's program for his people. Be fruitful, multiply, spread, and bless. And finally, we have a promise of presence. The Lord says, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God promises to be with Jacob wherever he goes. What a promise for him to hear at this point in his life. He promises to return him to the land. God's kingdom includes all of this. God's people in God's place with God's presence. And so he promises that he will never leave Jacob. Not until what he's promised has come to pass. Now, what, what does all of this signify? For Jacob and for us. Well, first... It shows us that the way to God is open. And you do realize it doesn't have to be that way. The way to God does not have to be open. The Lord could fully and clearly reveal himself to all of creation and all of mankind and be like, but you are sinners and you don't get to take part in this glory. Instead, I've come to judge. We, we don't have to receive Bless the way to God does not have to be open. It could be closed up. But let's think about this staircase for a second that Jacob saw. You see, something that's not obvious on the pages here is that many of the ancient Near Eastern religions and cultures, they, they, many of them had conceptions of a stairway or a staircase that led to heaven, that linked heaven and earth. And many of them actually depicted these staircases through temples that actually had stairs. You may have seen pictures of some of these. They have stairs that lead all the way up to the top, and at the top is where there would be an altar and where the worship would be conducted, where sacrifices would be made. Because they believed that this staircase represented a way to heaven, a link between heaven and earth, a connection to the gods. This was true in, in a lot of Mesopotamian religions and cultures, and, and even some uh, Egyptian. Um, they called this, this temple a, a, a ziggurat. 
It was a place of worship, and it had this long staircase that, you know, would extend all the way to the top. And in Genesis 28, we don't have any language about a ziggurat or anything like that, and Jacob doesn't want to build one. It's not, it's, that's not what's important here. What's important here is the word that was used in all of these Mesopotamian cultures to describe this staircase is a very similar word that's used here in the Hebrew where we translate it as staircase or ladder. You see, the Lord is showing Jacob that despite his sin and despite his deception and despite his current condition, the way to heaven has not been closed up. It is wide open. It's in this place that there is access to God. It's in this place that heaven and earth touch. The way to God is open. But second, this signifies or it means that in order for us to get to God, so if the way to God is open, if it's open, how do we get there? What, what this dream tells us is that the only way for us to get to God is for God to come down to us. Notice what descends the staircase. Not a law, not a book, not a list of rules or good advice. Not a 10-step process for self-improvement. Why? Because none of those things can bridge the gap that our sin has created between us and God. God descends the staircase in Jacob's dream. That's significant. God stands beside or above Jacob. And God has come down to dwell with Jacob. This is significant because Jacob was not looking for God. And Jacob cannot ascend the staircase the way that the angels did. You know, there are some commentators that I read this week, and at this point they would contrast the Tower of Babel and the staircase in Jacob's dream. There are similarities here. Babel, if, if you remember, it was the, the foolish attempt by, by the people of the time, these rebellious people, to try and make their way from earth to the top of the heavens. And, of course, here in the dream, it's the staircase that's coming down from heaven to earth. So it's, a, it's an opposite display of events despite the similarities. In Jacob's dream, one of the things that we are taught here is that it must be heaven that comes down to earth. And what Babel taught us is that any human attempt that tries to chase or gain eternity will ultimately fall short. Heaven must come down. We can't go up. And so while we will always fail to reach God, what we see here is that God will never fail to reach us. The only way for heaven to meet earth the only way for Jacob to know God, the only way for Jacob to dwell with God, to possess the blessing and promise of God, is for God himself to come down to him. Now, this stairway, this staircase or ladder, this way to God to be reconciled with him, it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but in the early days of Jesus' ministry, we actually learn from John chapter 1 that Jesus was calling some of his first disciples. And, and he calls a man named Philip to follow him. And he calls Philip, and Philip is just so enthralled, so, so amazed at Jesus, he immediately runs to his friend Nathaniel. And he goes to Nathaniel, and he's like, Nathaniel, we found him. 
We found it. This is the Messiah. This is the one that Moses wrote about. This is the one the prophets wrote about. He is the Savior who has come. You have to come and follow him with me. And he says, who, who is this again? And Philip says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And, and Nathaniel, he just scoffs. What good can come from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? And so, we, so Philip just looks at him like we do with some of our friends. And we're like, okay, I can't argue with you here. Just come with me. Just come and see. And so Philip, he takes Nathaniel, he takes him to Jesus, and as soon as Jesus sees Nathaniel coming, he's like, oh, I know you. You were the guy that was sitting over there by the fig tree before Philip even came to you at all. And Nathaniel is just floored by, by this ability of Jesus to see him in this way. And he's like, wow. He's like, you are, and immediately, this guy that's like, oh, what good can come from Nazareth? Jesus says one sentence, and he's like, you're the king of the Jews. You, you are the son of God. Nathaniel is just so amazed. And then Jesus looks back at him, and he's like, that impressed you? Oh, just wait. And then Jesus says this, you will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And listen to this language. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. No, that's not what he says. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not on the ladder, not on the staircase, on the Son of Man. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's pointing back to this dream that Jacob had. And he's saying, I am the ladder. I am the staircase. Jesus is the staircase in Jacob's dream. Jesus is the one through whom heaven meets earth. He is the one through whom access to God is possible. Jesus is the only one who can open the gate to heaven for sinners like us. Jesus is the only way that we can be with God. He is the staircase. Jesus, in his incarnation, in his perfect life, in his atoning sacrifice on the cross, has made the way. In him, heaven has come down to us. And it is by his grace, through faith in him alone, that we become ourselves the hope of eternal glory. What unbelievable, unfathomable grace that Jacob is given a vision into and that we receive along with him. This ladder, this staircase in the Old Testament was nothing more than a shadow that was always meant to point us forward to the reality of the event when Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, descended from heaven, and dwelled with us so that he is the way, the truth, and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So that in the words of Paul to young Timothy, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And there's one more thing we see here. And how beautiful is this? If that's not enough, the third thing that, it, that the, the dream means and signifies is that God not only comes down, not only comes down in grace, he comes down for sinners. Think back to the list of promises that God makes to Jacob. They're, 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 it's amazing. He reveals himself. He promises him land and children and, and dominion and presence. I'm never going to leave you ever, Jacob. All of that become, comes to him before he worships. This is all before he marvels at the awesomeness of God in verses 16 and 17. This is before he begins living a life of faith. God's promises are made to the weary and wandering exile Jacob before he changed. 
who had nothing to offer but his guilty heart. You know, something that I do every single week in sermon prep, it's one of the first things that I do, is I observe the text. I observe, I just make observations, what's here? It helps with exegesis to make sure that I'm not just, you know, putting my own thoughts into the scriptures, that I'm just preaching what's here. And, and so we just make observations. Um, and, and when I make observations, I look for two things. I look for what's there, okay, what's actually here, and then as I'm reading it, if anything surprised me, like, oh, I felt like I've read this before, I thought this was here. If there's anything that's not there that I, that I would expect to be there, I make note of that too. And the one thing, as I was doing that this past week, that is noticeably absent from God's speech is a single word of judgment or condemnation. In none of the statements that God makes does he say, shame on you, Jacob. Shame on you. How, how could you do that to your own father? How could you do that to your brother? I mean, what do you think, what do you think Rebecca, your mom, what do you think she's going through right now? None of that. None of that. No reminding him of his years of stealing and lying and deception. None, none of the, no reminders of the way that he had uh, destroyed his own family. Jacob had blown it in a big way and he fully deserved God's judgment. But when God comes down, he gives him nothing but grace. And this isn't to pass over his sin. But, but it is for him to realize that as he comes along and as he trusts in the Lord, the past will find forgiveness and his hope from that day forward can be in God and God alone. You see, if God had not sought Jacob out, he would have continued running. And so would we. We're born to run this way. We're, we're, we're all born not seeking the Lord. We're all like sheep that have gone astray. And we seek things in our own way, according to our own wisdom. If God had not sought you, you would still be weary. You would still be wandering. Free, undeserved, unmerited grace is brought down to us in Christ. And this is the beauty of the gospel. That it is God who comes down to us meets us in our rebellious, sinful state, takes us in, and promises us eternal blessing in a home. Only he can accomplish that. And it's on the basis of that grace that Jacob's life is changed forever. And it's on the basis of that grace that our lives are changed forever. And the last thing we'll see really quickly is Jacob's change. He changed. Look what he says. He wakes up in verse 16. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he praises God. He says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And then Jacob immediately turns, and it says early in the morning, he, he took the stone that he had slept on uh, the night before. He set it up as a pillar. He poured oil on the top of it, a way to commemorate the place. He names the place Bethel, which means the place or the house of God. And then Jacob turns and he makes a vow. And he says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God and this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. We start to see Jacob's life change as soon as he wakes up from this dream. And this is an important lesson for us. 
The grace that saves us is the grace that changes us. God's commitment to us precedes our commitment to him, and God's commitment to us empowers and creates our commitment to him. When you have an encounter with God's grace, you're never the same again. And what does it look like? What did it look like for Jacob? Well, when he encountered God's grace, he responded with worship. And, and we, we should respond to the Lord's grace with worship and praise. And, and for Jacob, too, it, it, it led to devotion. He says, the Lord will be my God. He will be my God. I will be his son. And so encountering God's grace is the beginning of a new relationship with God. You're on new terms. And God's grace created a new identity for Jacob, and it creates a new identity for us. We become God's people, and as such, we live according to our God's ways. But we also see Jacob, as he responds, he responds with commitment. Jacob tithed. He, he gave 10% of all that he had to the Lord. Now, the point to emphasize here is that once we have encountered God's grace, we begin to understand and live as if everything that we have ultimately belongs to God and that we ultimately are not our own, but we belong, body and spirit, to the Lord himself. And so there's a change that happens. We submit every area of our lives to the Lord. And so while our commitment to God doesn't somehow invite or create God's commitment to us, his commitment to us does create commitment in us. So the question this morning is, how are we going to respond to God's grace? How will you respond? How do you need to respond to God's grace this morning? Are you living your life, all of your life, for the Lord and his glory? Are you inhaling his blessing and then exhaling his blessing? Are you living for the Lord or are you living for yourself? Well, if you're not living for the Lord right now, but instead, primarily for yourself, trying to prove yourself worthy, it's likely due to one of two reasons. Maybe you've never had an encounter with God's grace. Maybe you've known a lot about it. You, you want to be on God's team or his side. You have some ideas about who God is, but you've never had an encounter with God's grace. You've never trusted in Jesus. Or maybe you have yet to wake up from the dream of the gospel. You haven't awakened to the power of God's grace in your life. You've instead grown numb to it. Are you awake to God's grace this morning? When you wake up, you will respond much like Jacob. You will worship. You will devote your life to the Lord. You will commit yourself fully to him. God has come down to us. Jesus is the staircase. He is the way to heaven. Look to him this morning with the eyes of faith and live the rest of your days with the Lord as your God, knowing this promise that was given to Jacob is given to you in Christ. He will never leave you. He will always be with you.